Hello everyone and thank you for joining me for another edition of Tales from a Very Minor Celebrity. Um, sorry I wasn't here last week, I took um, a short holiday, went to uh, North Devon and South Devon, saw the parents, saw my brother, saw uh, uh, one of my cousins, had a really nice week away. So uh, hence uh, there was no Tales from a Very Minor Celebrity last week, but I'm back with a cracking episode this week. You'll be hearing again from one of the many musical stars that I've interviewed over the years. Today, Alan Price, the original keyboardist with The Animals, House of the Rising Sun, etc. A really great group. And as the iconic Australian soap Neighbours ends today, after 37 years on UK screens, but transmitted all over the world, you'll hear an interview I did with one of the show's longest-serving actors, Tom Oliver, who played Lou Carpenter, in over 2,000 episodes. But first, Alan Price, who, as I mentioned, was the original keyboardist with The Animals before he left in 1965 to form his own band, The Alan Price Set. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How many of my musical guests have been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Uh, He was inducted in 1994 as a member of The Animals, having played on such iconic songs as House of the Rising Sun, We've Got to Get Out of This Place, Uh, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, etc. He's also known for his solo work. His best-known songs include Jarrow's Song, The House That Jack Built, Simon Smith and His Amazing Dancing Bear, and so on. We chatted in around 2000, I think it was, in an extended interview because he was such an interesting bloke to talk to. And he began by talking about how and when he first took up the instrument that would shape his life. I had an illness of yellow jaundice. It was quite serious. And I was off school for a year and I was very critical at one stage and they moved me down to the front room where they normally move people when they're going to die. And in the same room was a piano. And my mother was a cleaner at the local school. And when I went in, when she was cleaning, uh, the the piano tuner came up and he he opened up the piano and he found money inside. (laughs) So when I went back to my granny's, I opened up the piano and uh, there was an old threepenny bit in there and an old sixpence. So I thought there's, there's money in this piano business. <laughs> so I taught myself to play. And did it come to you quite easily? Well, I learned to play by ear, and there was always music around the house. My father was a singer, yeah. uh, and the, the, and his two brothers used to do a three-part harmony. My brother used to uh, play the trumpet, and he was also a choir master at the local Baptist church. And my mother, uh, my, my grandmother, ran a, uh, an over-60s club, and they used to do Edwardian songs and rehearse in the front room. Wow. So I, there was always music around. And did you ever um, perform with your parents? No, no. Uh, but I, I had to play it. You had to do your party piece. My grandmother was yes. a, uh, a matriarchal figure. So every, and Saturday nights, this is pre-television era, uh, everyone had to go to my grandma's and everybody had to perform and either recite a piece of poetry or sing a song or do something. So you grew up quite early on performing in front of people. Yes, I hated every minute of it. I used to get really uh, uh, self-conscious. Wow. And and, uh, my grandmother knocked it out of me, really. I was going to say, has it stayed with you? Do you still get nervous on stage? I think everybody gets nervous, really. I mean, uh, every performance uh, is new by virtue of the different people, different hall, different place. Yeah. And and, and it's just, it it also leads to natural adrenaline because um, it's it's quite an artificial thing to get on stage. So if you're you're a bit nervous, it gets you up there. It's It's gladiatorial in that sense. Yeah. Um, Can I take you back to your days with the animals? Um, Do you look back on those days with affection? 
Well, yes, they're part of my it's my past. It's part of my history. I do indeed. And the the animals are a very good band, and we were part of a a great experiment. It was a bit like wartime, you know. We went mm. over to America, and uh, we we conquered, which is a very difficult thing to do. Absolutely. I mean, when we when we uh, were successful in America, we had over fifty percent of the American market, which was a real achievement for any industry at all. But you you know you left the band um am i right in saying you actually were planning to leave the band you know at its height i i, I just hated the flying entirely mm. and uh, to plug up the courage i used to have to buy a bottle of vodka and drink that before i got on the plane Cheers. and if you do 70 cities in 70 days you're you're not in a very fit state after that and i was actually ruining my health yeah. and um i i felt it, w- it wasn't worth the candle really and so um i decided in the end i had to go back and regroup and i went back to newcastle and took about six months off before I started uh, the Alan Price set. So if you didn't have this fear of flying, do you think you would have stayed with them longer? I think, yes, I think we would have seen it off. I mean, there's a natural progression. You know, it happens in all groups. They can't stay together forever. In fact, most groups only stay together for the length of a contract with Mm. a record company, really, because that's what you're in business to do. It's the same as all shops. It's very very few chain shops keep going for a long time, like Marks & Spencer. You know, most most corner shops open and close all the time or change hands. Mm. Did you enjoy, um, I know you had this fear of flying, but did you enjoy uh, your success in America? It was strange to play in front of uh, 20,000, 50,000, 14,000 people because really the, the audience were the event and you weren't. Yeah. You were just providing the, uh, the, the, the background music to it. <laughs> and uh, they, they never really looked on you as human beings. I remember being attacked by fans. And I remember they tore the bass player's hair out, they ripped the suits, <laughs> and uh, they'd run out. They they'd bought all the jelly babies up for the, for the Beatles, <laughs> and they'd thrown them. So we we got acid sweets in the end. And if you've been hit by an acid sweet from the balcony, it can really hurt. And I remember the, the drummer Johnny Steele got one right in the forehead and actually fell off the top of a uh, of a stage uh, about twelve foot high. So it was quite, um, and we, we were mobbed quite a few times, and it was quite a frightening experience. We were in a car that got crushed in San Francisco wow. by all the people coming out uh, and jumping on the roof, and uh, so the, it it had its moments. Did you ever get that reaction over here? Not really. I can remember after five hits, we were st- we were playing in Tottenham Court Road at a, a pub called the the Manor House, and uh, the girls down the front were just uh, pulling the singer's leg, Eric Burden, and saying, "Can you do a Beatles song?" Use uh, treated as stars in 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 Britain, because you know, as, as you know, it's a nation of philistines really, and they know that everybody's in it just to make a, a few bob, so they don't treat you like that uh, with the same sort of contempt that they treat footballers. I think. Mm. You mentioned Eric Burden. What was your relationship like with him? He was um, a, 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 a chap who had a, lot, a record collection. He lived in Newcastle, and he lived next door to a merchant seaman. And uh, the guy used to go, this is long before you could, the record shops used to stock blues records. Mm. And you could, um, he, th- this guy would bring them back from his travels, from Canada and from uh, America. So Eric was the fount of all wisdom when it came to that. And he had a great influence on the, the kind of piano styles that I had. Because he used to copy a singer called Joe Turner, and I was his sort of amuensis, like uh, Pete Johnson used to play boogie piano. So I learned to play like that. So he had a great influence, and he's a marvelous singer. So we had a, we had a very good relationship actually, when it, uh, musically. And um, what, uh, in a sense, it was a, a, a group that was fated to break up because all we were were the best players in the Newcastle area who got together, and we had entirely different social lives and different ideas, different politics, different you know backgrounds, different families. 
and um, it was uh, it only hung together as long as the music was satisfying. Mm. And after about um, a couple of years, we'd exhausted all the stuff that we'd learned because uh, the producer was very lucky that he had a ready-made band. And uh, because we'd been rehearsing and playing together for eight years, as soon as that ran out and we weren't writing our own material, I think that the, the group was fated to, to just fade away. Yeah. Were you mates? In what's, I think that it's a bit rather like, again, in, uh, if you're in the army, you've got to muck in together. Yeah. And, uh, you have to, uh, get on with the guys in the barracks because, you know, you've got to keep the, you've got to keep the place clean. And, and, and it worked. And, uh, but we were never what you might call deep soul mates. Uh, none of us were. Mm. Um, after the animals, you, your career really went up and up, didn't it? Well, only, it's totally by accident. Um, I, de I determined that I had to sort of uh, prove me worth. Uh, as if I was going to be a band leader, I had to have hit singles. And so I, I went about it in a determined way and followed me on uh, nose. And uh, did I put a spell on you and Simon Smith and Don't Stop the Carnival, High Lily, High Law. And uh, by chance I came, I was uh, approached by uh, Lindsay Anderson, the filmmaker, and he got me to write some film music. And then I had an idea of doing uh, a musical, and uh, I saw Andy Cap in, in a newspaper in Los Angeles, so I decided to do that as a musical. So um, it, it's really, a lot of it has been by chance, not by design, because I haven't had a manager since 1965. Wow. Do it yourself if you can, that's what I say. Why pay 10%? Well, I, I don't think it was that so much. Is that I've always wanted to, I know that I'm a sort of delicate flower. And I don't do, <laughs> I, don't, I don't take kindly to being ordered about. And um, I, I very much me on a bit of an outsider. So uh, if, if I've only got myself to please, then there's very little friction. And I found out that being signed to major uh, corporations and record companies and agents and managers and merchant bankers, has a, uh, we're all in the end owned by corporations. And, I, and if you can avoid that as much as you can, I think you become a bit of a free man. It doesn't always do you some good. It's nice to have the security around you, like yeah. I did when I was a civil servant and used to be a tax man. But uh, <laughs> the, it's it's best to look after yourself. Let's bring you right up to date. Your latest album is called Based on a True Story. Why is it called that? I think it's basically because, well, it is what it is. It's it's not it's not necessarily my true story, but it's about the friends and the people that have been around my life and the things that they've gone through. And um, I had a bit of a reassessment. I um, I had a heart condition of a of a kind that had to be corrected uh, with uh, steel tubes put into the arteries, and uh, that makes you uh, consider your life a bit. And I thought I haven't been writing lately. I better leave a bit of a legacy for me my youngest daughter, Amy. She's ten years old, so. I I, I thought I'd put down a, a few pearls of wisdom, and um, it's, it's it's a kind of uh, a thing that she can look back upon, and uh, she'll know that's it was a, uh, a difficult time in my life, and yeah. um, it's a good album for that reason. It is a very good album. I, I I have listened to it. It's very laid back, very very sort of relaxing album. Ruminative. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I put a lot of thought into it. And I also was in contact with um, other people at the time who were going through uh, life changes, you know, and the life was really changing. We'd had long discussions and we were uh, talking about the books that they'd bought and the advice that had been given by doctors and what have you. And I thought that would be an, an interesting um, subject to really devote yourself to because there's people that you care about and they've, they've, they've gone through a bad time. Um, I think it's good that you can take some of the advice so when you've seen them come out the other end and put it down on record mm. um are you an extravagant man you've, you've obviously got a bubble too do you like to spend it 
Very rarely. I mean, when I go on stage, I've been wearing the same trousers that I got free in an <laughs> advert I did for Color Gas in, in 1990. So they've lasted about 12 years. And I'm, I'm, I'm very much a creature of habit. And it's, it's only, I only buy things if I'm given them or somebody goes out and buys them. <laughs> I, I have got no fashion sense whatsoever. My only extravagance is um, uh, golf clubs. And uh, the last set I bought, I got off the professional at my club secondhand for £200. So that's not really <laughs> spending a lot of money. And I buy me cars second and third hand. So, uh, no, it's not that I mean. No. I did all of that in the early days. Yeah. And I found out that material possessions, apart from getting a home and what have you, are very transient. And you get very little pleasure. And uh, out of uh, material stuff. Uh, for for women, I think it's 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 good therapy, retail therapy. But um, I, I I don't I don't get a great deal of pleasure out of it. And I was brought up from a very poor background. In a uh, you know, and we lost my dad very early on. And I used to have to wear hand me downs and what have you. So I, I I'm I'm used to making and mending. All right, mate. Well, listen, it's been a, a delight talking to you. The album is brilliant. I've, as I said, I, I have listened to it based on a, a true story. And uh, I'm delighted to say you're going to be in the county at the Mercury Theatre in Colchester on 2nd of November. Yes, yes. I always feel very guilty when I was there. I went on a golf trip uh, the, about um, a, a few years ago and uh, my, car, my car battery ran down and I didn't make it back to Colchester Mercury Theatre and there was a full house there. And uh, so I always feel a bit nervous when I'm doing that gig. <laughs> But they're very nice people, so I'm looking, tell them I'm looking forward to it. Well, they'll be listening to this, and uh, they've got it from the horse's mouth. Uh, Alan Price, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Alan Price. The original lineup of the animals was Alan Price, Eric Burden, Chaz Chandler, Hilton Valentine, and John Steele. They reunited for a one off benefit concert in Newcastle in 1968, and they later launched brief comebacks in 1975 and 1983. Now, neighbours, it's coming to an end today after 37 years on air in the UK, and it's the end of an era for soap fans the world over. The Ramsey Street based show has seen its fair share of drama, deaths, wedding births, murders and the rest. But the biggest drama of all was in March 2022 when show bosses announced that it was coming to an end. Tom Oliver is the British-born Australian actor who started his career in theatre in his native country before emigrating to Australia. He's been a staple of the small screen since the early 1960s, but is best known for his TV soap opera roles, most notably, of course, Lou Carpenter, a role he played for over 25 years and he appeared in over 2,300 episodes, where he is best known for his constant sparring with Harold Bishop. We spoke just after he'd come to the UK to attend the British Television Awards back in 2004, which was notable for a streaker who stormed the stage whilst Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne were presenting a prize. An excited Sharon Osbourne started shouting, I want that willy! Bring me back that willy man, as the streaker was whisked off by security guards. Did you see the streaker? Because I missed him. Yeah, well, I wasn't sure whether he was for real. No, hang on, I'll rephrase that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, whether it was part of an act or what. Because um, they seemed to bundle him out of the door very easily, if you yes, know what I mean. He didn't, I see. Um, but I, I, at the time, I thought it was part of the... Uh, 
part of the show. No, no I don't think it was. Sharon Osbourne was very impressed. Uh, yes, I noticed that, yes. <laughs> Were you disappointed you didn't win? No, not, not really disappointed. No, no, it's um, up against some wonderful competition there. And I, I just sort of, I like the gut feeling that it's, it's gone to a, a home show, as it were. But uh, I don't mind because, you see, um, I've got a daughter that lives in Essex. Oh, really? And two beautiful grandchildren, yes. So how did your family end up in Essex then? Um, it's, it's a long, long story. We don't have time at the moment. But right. um, Michelle, my, my, my daughter's up there, my, my lovely grandkids, um, Harriet and Georgia. And, uh, oh, they just choose to live in Essex, I guess. Yeah, well, why not? Yes. Why not? Now, we must, uh, must talk to you about uh, Neighbours. Um, you've mm-hmm. been in it uh, a few years now. I will have completed 13 years at Christmas, yes, Gee, all in one stretch. You must enjoy it. I do. It is truly a pleasure to get up and go to work every morning. And I'm one of those people, the earlier the better. I love that time of day. But um, they're, a, they're a great bunch of kids, not, not just in the cast, but the crew as well. And I call them kids because I'm the oldest one in the company. <laughs> but I think it's, it's good to have people that, uh, you know, we've grown up with. And it's great to see new people coming in and out. But I think you need, a, you know, a, a basis there of, of characters that we know and love. Yes, because uh, um, people go on about the demographics being very young. But um, I find in the past when I've come over to do pantomime that I get stopped more by grannies in the street, shall we say, mm. than the young people. That, that audience is certainly there. And I think uh, that's a major part of the success of Neighbours. Yeah, yeah. That is such a wide demographic. Yeah. Now, your character, um, forgive me, because uh, I'm working, I, I don't get to see Neighbours as, as much as uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to, but you're in prison at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I think I'm actually on day release at the moment. You're um, on day release. I was release. out last night to go to the Albert <laughs> Hall. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, um, I was talking to a journalist earlier today, and he mentioned about um, how much of... Um, am I anything like Lou? I said, well, no, Lou's more like me because when you're doing episodic television like this, you you cannot but help because of the time factor put part of your own character into a character. And uh, mischievous and honesty was the questions used. Mischievous, I can't even say it, can I? <laughs> being mischief and being honest. <laughs> That's better. And um, that was Lou's downfall as far as going to prison was concerned because he was honest. He actually turned himself into... Um, confess his wrought with a horse with Rocco and so that Toadfish could be saved. Yes. The, the future for you, um, are you going to be in, in Neighbours for the foreseeable future? I know you can't give away plot lines and things mm-hmm. like that. Well, but... yeah, I signed a new contract in July. Oh, really? Uh, for a year with a year's option on their side, uh, which is the usual procedure. And we shall see around next June if they wish to pick up that option. And um, I, I'm willing to carry on, you know, it's a... I only live 20 minutes up the road. I've nothing else to do in my old age. It keeps me off the streets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, and why not? And, and life in Australia, because, you, you know, as I said, you were, you were born in Hampshire. Um, mm-hmm. You joined the Navy as well. Merchant Navy. Yeah, yeah. Merchant, Merchant Navy. Navy. I set off to see the world when I was 16. Yeah. And you ended up in Australia. Yes. Do you, do you often wonder what would have happened to you if you, if you hadn't taken that, that sort of route? Well, a scary thing in as much as that um, I appreciate it's a job that needs to be done, but I didn't want to go the way some of my schoolmates went, and that was to have an apprenticeship in Portsmouth or Southampton Dockyard. And um, I used to, even at that age, hate English winters because, mm. you know, I grew up during the war with a thick, thick smog as well as the cold, and you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And... Uh, I was working one day, I ran into a friend of mine who uh, had a suntan, and I said, where did you get that suntan? And he <laughs> said, oh, I'm in the Merchant Navy. And I said, where do I sign? And a month later, I was in sea school at Gravesend, and um, two months after that, I was at sea on my first ship, setting off to see the world. And uh, 
I'd always had a burning passion to go to the South Sea Islands in the Pacific. And after a voyage around the Mediterranean, then four down to South Africa, I signed on a ship that did go around the world and did go through the South Seas. And I actually sailed into Tahiti Harbour at the age of 17, and I was in seventh heaven. And wh- when you're not working, is travelling your big passion? It is, yes. I get two two-week breaks written into my contract. That's apart from the uh, four weeks at Christmas when the studio is off air, totally. Yeah. Um, it breaks the year up for me, uh, keeps the scriptwriters on their toes. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I just set off to travel. I just love it. I'm, the older I get, the worse I get, actually. It's a disease with me. Tom Oliver, former stars of Neighbours, including Kylie Minogue, Jason Donovan, Guy Pearce and Margot Robbie, yep, I didn't know she was in it, returned to say goodbye in the final episode. And Neighbours also launched the careers of Hollywood stars such as Liam Hemsworth, Russell Crowe, yep, as well as singers Natalie Imbruglier, Delta Goodrum and Holly Valance. Great programme. It will be sorely missed by millions of people. Now, next week, some more musical stars for you, including Jose Feliciano, who sang a song which always brings back great memories for me because I lived in Spain for six years and every Christmas we'd always hear his hit, Feliz Navidad, for weeks on the radio. And also Ralph McTell, who has been an influential figure on the UK folk scene since the 1960s and whose long-standing friend and one of my heroes is Billy Connolly. In my life I've been fortunate to meet some wonderful people, but very few geniuses, uh, or genii, whatever the word is, but Billy's one. He's a genius. He's not just a a wonderful comedian, uh, which is, he's taken to the level of art form, I think, as well as not losing the common touch, but he's got an insight and perceptions of things which delight and amaze and amuse him, and and that's what he's able to communicate to us and make us look at things in a different way. So. I'm a huge fan as well as being a mate, you know. Yeah. That's Jose Feliciano and Ralph McTell next week on Tales from a Very Minor Celebrity.